strap yourself in. So when we go to a movie with our friends, if we do that, imagine that you've done that. So you go to a movie and you see the film and then afterwards we get out and what do we do? We tend to talk about what we thought the movie meant, what the message was. What's it all about? What was the point of that? Why did I spend $15? I don't know how much a movie costs. How much? $15? $15. Why did I spend $15 on that artsy Yugoslavian film? So we look for a meaning. The left hemisphere of the brain tends to struggle when it's presented with a long sequence of narrative events that don't cohere into an underlying, interpretable, coherent theme that we can walk away with. We like messages. We like underlying meanings that, we, that help us to get a handle or a grip to interpret experience. When you look at fMRI scans, when people see uh, or create order amidst chaos, their brains release left hemispheres, trigger the release of dopamine, a reward, makes you feel good. But if you can't interpret or find a coherent pattern or message or meaning, then the brain struggles and eventually, quite often, cortisol and other stress uh, hormones and neurotransmitters. So we have an inherent disposition to look, especially in the, because we make sense of life in the left hemisphere, where our thoughts are, we are storytelling, narrative-making beings. Right hemisphere creates positive emotions through connection, left hemisphere through meaning. So numerous, it's not surprising that numerous studies have shown from Sandra Leobomorsky and Jonathan Haidt and the positive psychologists in the 1980s to uh, Hill and Turiano of Carleton University, uh, the fact that we feel better when we can express easily a meaning for our life. We like it when we can verbalize and express, this is why I'm having these experiences, this is why I'm schlepping to my work, this is why I'm doing this. A feeling of purpose or meaning, Turiano and Hill showed, uh, when they studied 6,000 people for 14 years, they showed that you are 20%, almost 20%, not quite 20%, more likely to die if on their original tests you couldn't answer easily what the meaning for your life was. People who came up with any meaning survived. <laughs> meaning creates a sense of hope, a sense of durability, uh, an ability to withstand the negative experiences that will happen in life. So there are many themes that people use Themes that might sound ridiculous to us and themes that might sound quite natural. Some themes that just popped to mind when I thought about it. Peace of mind, having new experiences, love, honor, patriotism, success, God, being in harmony with nature, 
contributing to the greater good, connecting with loved ones, creative expression, developing new skills, self-esteem, the ability to laugh, overcoming self-consciousness or fear. All of these can feel like they give us meaning and purpose. When we have a meaning of life, all other endeavors feel like instruments or means to an end to achieve that meaning. So, for example, if we believe the meaning for our life is to connect with loved ones, then any success we have at work or any creative success we have is a means to that end, to connect with the people we love. So, having meaning creates a sense of ease, purpose, hope, and it also helps us prioritize what's important. Now, when we say, what is the meaning of life, we could, in fact, mean three different things. Because meaning actually has different meanings. One meaning is predetermined intention. If I say to you, I mean well when I say I hate your, head, your haircut, I'm saying that beneath my statement, which is pretty aggressive, that I mean well, that I'm trying to say don't go to your barber again. I don't know what I would be saying, but you get the idea. I can say that I mean well despite what you're hearing me say. If I say our love was meant to be, I'm saying that before we even met, there was an underlying intention, I guess by the universe, that we would meet. So that kind of meaning is saying that there's already a purpose for our lives, and it existed before we were born, and that our role is to discover it. The second meaning can be interpretation or of signification. For instance, green means go, red means stop, yellow light means proceed with caution. In that understanding, one thing means another. So life stands for something else. And the third meaning is the future implication. When I say those clouds over there mean rain, I don't mean that it's raining right now. I mean that the presence of those clouds mean that soon it will rain here. If I say global warming means the sea levels will rise, I don't mean that necessarily the sea levels have fully risen yet. I mean that they are in the process or will rise more in the future. So when I say what does something mean, I could be talking about an, attention, an intention that was established before I was born, or I could be saying, what does my life mean in terms of signification, or I could be talking about what is the implications of my actions in the future. And many people don't reflect on this. Now, it is important to tease these, uh, these things out a little bit because it, it reflects on how we create a meaning for our life. And I'd like to say that having a meaning is important, not just because you will probably live longer and be healthier and happier, but also if you don't create a meaning for your life consciously, intentionally, 
then you will rely on the meaning that has been interjected as what's called the imago, the internalized view of your parents and the society around you that tells you you're not good enough, you're not achieving enough, you should be doing better. Look at your friend in college who's now written five books. What have you done lately? Until we create a meaning for ourselves, we rely on the restricting inner tyrant to create meaning. That's because the first voice, the first thing we heard in our minds as thoughts was an introjection, an internalization of the restricting voice of the caretaker. <clears throat> so until we take the time to create a more gentle, peaceful, less harmful meaning, we will, also, we will often carry around with us a harsh meaning that we're not living <clears throat> up to. So it's in our best interest to reflect. This will help us make decisions wisely. Now in ancient Egypt, Rome, and Greece, people believed that meaning was already established by their birth, and they would see oracles, seers, prophets, and those individuals wouldn't ask so tell me, have you been in therapy? And what did your therapist pathologize you with? Are you working through... Uh, what's your attachment style? I mean, all of these are valid questions, but none of these seers or oracles would consult any of that. They would ask you what day you were born on. They would throw some uh, numbers around, consult tea leaves, look at your palm look at the stars. They would look for divinations that would tell you. And so they would, in, in essence, try to construct a meaning for your life based entirely upon things that had nothing to do with your actions whatsoever. And so meaning for one's life was something that, that had to be uncovered by somebody else, an expert, at telling you the meaning of your life. Eventually... Organized religions came about and they established meaning by creating what's known as origin stories. Stories of how the universe came to be. Essentially things along the lines of God created the universe in such and such a compacted period of time and why did he do such a thing to create an arena in which we would play out our existences determining if we're good enough to go to heaven or be consigned to the realms of hell. And so once again, there was a meaning that was largely predetermined before our birth, and the only thing we did was take some tests. And even the Calvinists believed that how we would preceding those tests were also predetermined. So once again, the idea is that all you have to do is uncover the meaning for life. It doesn't really matter what you do, how you construct your life, what's important to you. It's something that you have to go along with. Now obviously, there's a huge problem, many problems with this 
not only is an inauthentic approach to creating meaning, but also it's a very fragile one because the first time you have a trauma in your life where someone you love or care about dies, you will struggle to find any coherent meaning in that experience. To wit, let's bring to mind Macbeth, perhaps the first great example of pessimism in the arts. Macbeth is taught, if I re- is told, if I re- recall correctly, and it's been a long time since I remember, I mean, I think I remember reading it in high school, but if I'm correct, there were witches that inform him that he'll be the king of Scotland, and that's his destiny. So his destiny was established well before his birth, and his role in life is simply to live in accordance with this predetermined plan. So he goes all out, cuts corners, acts in politically expedient ways, including murder, to achieve his aims. And then when he finds out his wife has died, he gives the great speech. For the trauma shakes loose, loose any faith in the meaning that he's been provided with. It no longer has any weight or validity or sense of a purpose or point. He says life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets its hour upon the stage then is heard no more. A tale told by an idiot filled with sound and full, full, what is it? Full, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. So what is Shakespeare saying? that after a trauma, if we believe that there's already a purpose or meaning for life that's not constructed by our actions and how we live, if it's something that's provided, if it's something that we believe is extraneous to us, then we will experience a great alienation and dissatisfaction. We will experience life to be a walking shadow, i.e. without substance, a poor player, i.e. will be bad actors in life, trying to get love by performing. Our hour upon the stage then is heard no more. Our lives will have no matter once we're dead. And our lives will be a tale told by an idiot. Well, you can guess what that means. So that's the beginning of pessimism and nihilism in the arts. And increasingly with Newtonian views of the universe and Darwin, what became increasingly clear is that science had more compelling organizing principles for how the universe came to be and the underlying laws of it than religion. And so there was a great crisis of faith. And by 1818, one of my favorite philosophers, Schopenhauer, he's a gas, the great pessimist said that human existence is nothing more than an incoherent, devouring, insatiable will to power, a will that simply reproduces itself without any purpose whatsoever, and that the role of your consciousness is to delude you to the fact that you have no purpose whatsoever. It's a jolly little theory. Increasingly, as existentialism came around, more meaning was proposed. 
they rebounded a little bit. Camus said that to rebel against the falseness of everything that's enshrined as meaning around you gives your life purpose. To be a rebel, I like that. I like that idea. Unfortunately, he died quite young in a car crash beating. <laughs> Sartre said that existence precedes essence. We are thrown into existence and that we only achieve meaning through acting authentically. What does that mean? You make choices without influence. You own and take responsibility from your choices and come up with your own process of deciding what is right and wrong. You don't believe in the petty morals that have been foisted upon you by the world around you. And then, finally, perhaps the greatest existentialist of them all, Heidegger, said that we get meaning living towards death. Being towards death gives each action meaning. For instance, if I decide to go to the movies, if I think, well, I've got endless time, I'm going to wind up in heaven or hell anyway for eternity, it hardly matters. I'm not making any sacrifice. The decision to go to a, me a movie doesn't really have any validity over anything else because I believe that I'm going to be around for a long time. But if I know and I'm aware of my death in every choice I make, that I have only so much time that my death can come without any warning, that I can't predict it, that every decision I make is weighed as a sacrifice. I'm sacrificing other things I could be doing. It's using up what precious time I have. And so death, according to Heidegger, creates meaning for life. Rather than voiding life of its meaning, Heidegger said the exact opposite. It's only when in each decision you are aware of how finite your existence is and you weigh each choice against that possibility that the next breath or the next day or the next month could contain the finiteness of my existence that my choices have any weight to them at all. Forgetting it, to be unaware of death, is to deprive my choices and my life of meaning. It's a very powerful and interesting thought. Now, let's bring in the Buddha. The Buddha did, of course, find the voidness of meaning in trying to strive for wealth, or power, or approval, or short-term sensual pleasures, for going with the status quo. He posits, like Heidegger, that every action that we take should be weighed against what our future holds. The Buddha in the First Noble Truth said, in life there is old age, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, you get the idea, separated from the loved ones, being stuck with people we don't like. Now, he's not saying that's all there is in life, but he's saying that's going to happen. In his five daily reflections, the Buddha said, every day we should remember and reflect before we make choices on the following. I'm of the nature to grow old. I'm of the nature to become sick. I'm of the nature to die. Everything I love, I can be separated from. And the only thing that will create peace of mind is the quality of my actions. Now that's the big thing that separates the Buddha from the existentialists. The first four are essentially saying, live your life 
as in any moment you could be deprived of what you love through sickness or illness or through separation from people you love doing those things with or through um, the ravages of old age or death itself to really cherish each decision against the finiteness and the underlying truth that comes with a human birth. When we weigh this, it doesn't again deprive life of meaning, it gives our choices meaning. And it makes a lot of the compromises we make in life, in work and relationships, uncomfortable. It's meant to be problematizing. It's meant to make us uncomfortable to weigh these considerations. But the Buddha went on. The Buddha said in the third noble truth, it's not all old age, sickness, and death. There is a liberation from all the needless suffering that we create for ourselves. That through the quality of our actions, we can actually create peace of mind even amidst all the loss and pain and struggle, frustrations that we will inevitably experience. The Buddha furthermore says that the key to creating this peace of mind is to act harmlessly. In his great Kalama Sutta, he doesn't say, do what I say or do what's written. He doesn't say, do what you've been told. He doesn't say, do what is common sense or what other people do. He says, don't do that. He says, see for yourself which actions create long-term peace of mind. And if you really look, you will see that harmless actions, compassion, kindness to self and others, care, considering weighing the benefits to others, make you feel better. And if you act selfishly, reactively, through habitual self-centered goals, you will not feel good in the long term. Now this, in the Buddhist time, would have taken quite a period of time to prove to yourself. Fortunately today we have neuroscience that shows us that the right hemisphere indeed is hardwired to punish us when we act selfishly and to reward us with positive emotions when we act in ways that benefit the tribe that we feel connected to. When people act harmfully, it's because they feel threatened and they re rely on the left hemisphere to create short-term pleasure. But when we act in ways that benefit others over long periods of time, we release serotonin, we feel better about ourselves, we feel happier. And the Buddha maintains that this creates a meaning for life. Not just living towards death, but also living towards the fact, that fifth reflection, that our actions matter, not just today, but the implications into the future. It brings us back to that third meaning of meaning. It's not just a thing that we have to uncover. The Buddha doesn't believe that there's any predetermined meaning to our lives. It's something that we create through our actions 
and it's also in the mind states that we create through the moral quality of our acts. It's a very open-ended, and it gives you a lot of leeway. You're not expected to be successful or patriotic or to believe in any God. You're not expected to look good or achieve a lot. You could do all those things. You could look terrific and achieve a lot and be a great success, but you don't have to. But so long as you are weighing the true implications of having a body, that it is impermanent, and that the moral fabric of your actions create the peace of mind that you live in, you will have a meaning that you can rely on. Now, finally, what I'm just going to end with is Sartre and the existentialists like Heidegger really struggled with the idea of a Freudian unconscious because they believed that our actions were only authentic when we owned and made decisions consciously, rationally, through our own choice. And of course, believing in an unconscious makes that a little bit difficult because if you believe there's a part of your mind that's acting beyond your rational control, it kind of throws a wrench into the works it kind of is inconvenient. Sartre went on to say, in fact, that anybody who believes in Freud is believing in false, is a, what is it, false beliefs, false consciousness. False consciousness. It's not authentic to believe in an unconscious. What I would propose is that in 21st century culture, our role is not to just believe that it's our rational choices that matter, but also the emotional messages of our unconscious that play an enormous role in determining the meaning of our lives. I'll give you an example. At one point in my life, I was terrified of speaking in public. I had a fear of doing anything like this. And if I had lived by that fear, and not worked against it, I would have deprived myself of the opportunity to be of service to Dharma Punks and to continue the work that Noah started here 12 years ago and I continued to starting 10 years ago. That fear of speaking in public was created by early childhood experiences where I felt really poorly tolerated by other kids in school and made fun of, and it created this fear of speaking aloud in front of other people. So the fear is created by early contextual experience. So that's an inauthentic or old emotion that we don't need to follow and it doesn't need to create a meaning for our lives. But in life we also have times when our emotions contain great truths. For instance, think of the person who is considering going to graduate school and they procrastinate on writing their um, the paper or applying for the graduate program. Now they might think that their procrastination is getting in the way 
of their progress, but the procrastination might in fact be an authentic message that deep down inside they really don't want to go to graduate school. And the procrastination is their mind saying, I don't want any part of this. I'm just applying to graduate school because my parents or my friends or my girlfriend or the world around me says that people with graduate degrees are more happy or successful, but I really don't want to do it. I'm just going through the motions. Very often in life, we have emotions that contain very important messages. Loneliness, it's inconvenient to that part of us that wants to work all the time, but loneliness can mean that we're not feeling connected to the people we love and that are important to us. Anger can mean that we haven't established wise boundaries in our relationships with important people. Fear can also contain the message that we're pushing ourselves too hard, that we don't, that we feel vulnerable and not supported enough. So it's only when we take the time to uncover the emotional messages beneath these activations that we can also construct fully authentic meanings for our lives. We have to weigh not just the rational choices and the achievement agendas and what brings us a sense of pleasure, we have to weigh also what truly creates a feeling of lasting peace in the mind. I hope there was something worth pondering. I thank you for listening.